Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. I um, I much feel much more comfortable when I'm talking out of the Bible uh, than doing what I'm doing tonight, but I think it's necessary, and I think it would be good to talk about what we are uh, going to talk about. Now, also... Um, I have to critique some things and some people. Now, I won't necessarily use names of people, but um, it's necessary that I do critique them. Now, I'm carefully using that word critique rather than be critical of, because I think there is a difference between looking at what something someone does or something represents as opposed to making a judgment on that, but making an observation from where we sit about what might be issues that we would want to notice and recognize um, for our help. But as ever, it's not my decision what your conclusions are on that. It's your decision what your conclusions are. So I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about the legacy of our past and the shape of things to come. Um, I think for all of us, the legacy of our past is both good and bad. I, um, the most important spiritual male in my life was my father-in-law. Not my father, I loved him very much, but um, the most prominent role was my father-in-law who, um, he's been gone now 23 years. Um, But I was really his son in the faith. Um, I have no doubt that some of the things we're talking about now would would stretch him, but I have every confidence that um, if he's listening, whatever your philosophy and doctrine on that is, that <clears throat> he, would, he would very happily journey with us because to some degree, the, the trajectory that we have taken is a consequence of his influence on my own life. Uh, those of you who were with us way back then will remember that um, when the most controversial thing on the block was a guy called Derek Prince... Uh, my father-in-law had him in here at our church when we were in Wilton Rise. Um, much to the um, disparagement of um, his peers within Assemblies of God that we were part of then and um, many others in the city. And uh, that my father-in-law also, when there was, a, um, there was a significant expression of faith in the 70s, Uh, and into the early 80s that became known as the Restoration Movement Um, with some guys called Bryn Jones who was in Bradford before Paul Scanlon. Paul Scanlon was raised up under Bryn Jones and uh, Terry Virgo, who is the leader of New Frontiers and uh, names that if any of you have been around church for a while you would recognize. Um, And it, it, it rode in on a wave of what was then much more contemporary style music and praise than we were involved in and had a very different element to its, to its theological concepts in very much teaching some elements that we have now which were about we weren't saved to go to heaven, we were saved to bring heaven here for the kingdom to come. Uh, and my father-in-law was never reluctant to have us 
presented with the opportunity to attend those meetings, which was then the Dales Bible Week in, um, in Harrogate. Again, much to the disparagement of his peers who said all oh, the music's all froth and bubble and the doctrine's screwy and this, that and the other. Um, so my, father, my father-in-law was very much um, uh, hungry to make sure that he not only explored himself but allowed us, because I was much younger then, to be exposed to, um, to some different uh, theological presentations and some different ways of doing church. And, um, and I admired him and respected him for that because that fed my prophetic spirit, even though I didn't know at the time that's what it was doing, but it was feeding my prophetic spirit. And um, I have tried to continue that legacy because I think if, if I were to dishonor his life, it would be to stay where we were. And I think if he appeared now, he would have some strong words to say to me if I had stayed where we were. So our... Our um, past has, has had that good element to it. Uh, it's also had other elements, which of course, um, some of you newer people won't appreciate how much the other half of the congregation have had to wrestle with the idea that things that we have believed may have been incorrect. Or, I don't want to use the word wrong, because a thing is only really wrong if if it's wrong at the time and you choose it when actually what we believed and what we embraced and what we taught, we, we were very sincere and very passionate about because that was the best understanding we had of the revelation available to us. So I don't think we were wrong, but then in some ways that's bad because, because we see that there were some things we were not exposed to, um, some concepts that we weren't allowed to wrestle with, some thoughts that were not introduced. Uh, and so we have made a journey, and, and I, I applaud all of you who have been around as long as me or longer than me, um, or somewhere in between, who have wrestled with those issues. And, you know, people say, well, here's the problem. To, to, one or two people have left us because their whole thing was, but if I embrace this, I have to accept that that wasn't right, that wasn't the full revelation, and I don't want to do that. So, so, so um, I very much applaud you that you have become the fruit of the good part of our legacy, um, not the bad part, okay? <clears throat> so there were also parts of our legacy which, <clears throat> which are intertwined with, with church thinking, and of course our stream of church, for those of you not familiar, we would be put in the evangelical camp of church belief, okay? Um, evangelical really meaning that the emphasis is not on a liturgical process to find God, but on an experience of salvation whereby one has encountered grace and received that grace, rather than, for example, in the Catholic tradition, you are baptized into the Catholic Church, so if you are a Catholic, baptized in the Catholic Church, you are saved because you are a Catholic baptized in the Catholic Church. On the evangelical end, it's more the result of the Reformation and Martin Luther, but it is by faith, it's by grace you're saved through faith. Okay, so, so we, we're on that side, broadly speaking, would be termed as evangelical. Um, we also have a Pentecostal heritage, which means that um, we were part of a Pentecostal denomination until 18 months ago. 
if any of you are interested to know um, why we stepped aside from that. It, it was not because of any um, uh, conflict of morality or lack of friendship. It was because we're going in different directions. And some of the things we are pursuing in the context of our belief and thought are not entirely compatible with the leadership uh, within that stream. And therefore, to prevent there being uh, a disassociation of embarrassment, we felt... We, we would move in a different direction. Of course, Pentecostal means we had a heritage of um, gifts of the Spirit, Acts chapter 2, speaking of the tongues, prophecy. I still believe in all of those things. Sometimes I feel really bad because I still speak in tongues a lot, but I've not necessarily taught you or, or pressed you into that, um, into that experience. The time may come, but I'm not just going to do it out of tradition. Okay? I think there are some other things we, we have need of aligning with um, in our journey to wherever God takes us on that that whole that whole um, process. So the reason I'm saying that is that within that evangelical Pentecostal Reformation stream, there are also some good legacy and some bad legacy. Uh, there's some good legacy in the root cause of what is Protestantism and evangelicalism, um, which was the break from the empirical system that had be become the Catholic Church and the restoration of salvation not by paying the church, not by working for it, not by the church saying that you could be or you couldn't be, um, but by an encounter with the grace of God and that en encounter of grace through faith bringing about this thing that we call a knowledge or an understanding of, of salvation. But of course, out of that stream has also come many bad things. Um, I won't bore you with all the different um, uh, divisions. I mean, the sad thing is in, in, in the evangelical world, this side of the stream, beyond Catholicism, there are now 33,000 denominations and growing every day. 33,000. So when people say to you, you know, um, but you are leaving the legacy of a thousand years of church history, that's the legacy so don't let anybody tell you, oh, everybody was in unity back then. You know, and it's just now you're in this. The, the church from its essence was never really unified over one specific process of belief. And it only became unified at times by force and sometimes by manipulation. And um, uh, when we start seeing the different councils to define what, we should believe, um, they started at least 200 years after um, the crucifixion of Jesus. The first known creed that is thought to be the first is the Apostles' Creed, which is about 200 to 250 AD. Uh, and then in the 350s, we had the, um, the Nicene Creed, which was then Constantine and now become Emperor of Rome and supposedly Christian, which uh, is very questionable because Christianity was expanding at such a rate and was having such an influence that it was politically um, helpful for Constantine to be a Christian. And even the story of Constantine, who supposedly had the battle on the, the, the Tabar River in Rome 
with the other guy who wanted to be emperor and the story of him seeing a vision and having a cross. The record of that was written a long time after it happened. So in reality, there's doubt that that ever really happened at the time that he happened when he said the cross had given him victory and now he was Christian. So there's a lot of, a lot of skullduggery gone on, I can tell you. Which does not in any way diminish um, the coming of Christ, the work of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and this wonderful thing that he said, I'll build my ecclesia. Um, the problem has never been with the authenticity. The problem's only been with what you and me and people like us do with that authenticity. But that's part of being human. So there's always been within this emerging thing that we know as the church, there's always been divisions and contentions and thoughts that you might say, well, how can anybody be a Christian if that's the case? Because Christianity is not based on people agreeing over doctrine. It's based on an understanding that God incarnate was here and is also still here and is here in me and we're trying to, to live probably clumsily in, in the reality of that and let everything emerge from that. So, so good and bad from our personal experiences, um, good and bad from, from church history, uh, but that's our legacy. Now, also, I have to say that any sense of a golden era, whether that's a golden era of life, you know, or if you'd have been around in the 60s kind of thing, or for church people, well, if only we'd been in the Welsh Revival, or, or you know, oh, well, you know, the 1900s and what have you, the, the real, reality is any sense of a golden era is an ideological construct of the mind that's more driven by nostalgia than the full assessment of reality. You know, when people talk about, oh, I remember them days were happy days. Yeah, and we had rickets and tuberculosis. And people were much poorer than they are now. Yeah, but we were happy. Okay, so we created trade unions because we were happy. No, we created trade unions because we said, want a bigger piece of the pie. This is not on. We're working hard. Mine owner's taking all the money. Mill owner's taking the money. We're getting nothing. So this, this idea of a golden era uh, has never existed in, in, um, in history and still doesn't exist and that's not the objective of it. Life is what it is. So, so don't let anybody pressure you in the context even of how you assess your Christian belief that somehow there has been a golden era in which everything was all right because it's just not true. Okay? So the greatest achievement of our past is that it delivered us to today. The great purpose of the past is to bring you to now, okay? Your history brought you to today. So it may have been checkered and colored and difficult and um, uh, needed some negotiating, but the truth is it's brought you to today. And we're here and we're listening and we have opportunities. Um, and the truth is that, that, that today is the only significant time in the context of the gospel. So Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 are the classic ones for this. Because um, it says, um, it, it says um, today if you will hear his voice and not harden your heart, you'll enter in. And it says, God spoke before to Joshua about an inheritance, but he never got it. But he said, but God made another day and he called it today and said, today if you will hear his voice. Um, 
you know, a, a verse that I used to hear many times was, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God's, God's focus and existence is today. It's now, okay? This is, this is the most important time that you will ever live. It's today, because when you get another 24 hours in advance, when will that be? I won't be tomorrow. There's no such a thing as tomorrow. Tomorrow is only a terminology to describe another today. So, so there's actually no such a thing for us as yesterday. There's no such a thing as tomorrow. All that's real is today. That's why God's name seemed really strange when, when Moses said to God, who shall I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am sent you. Which seems really strange, but when you understand that God was trying to instill into people that he is the I am, not the I will be, not the I was, but the I am, because today is the day, it means that we are always um, within reach of a miracle. We're always within reach of God, God being seen, felt, experienced, that God is with us. I heard, I've been listening to a guy these last couple of days who writes some tremendous songs. I don't like his style of music. Um, but he has a real go at this whole thing of, uh, of where God is. People inviting God down when he's already here. And, and uh, I agree with him. I think the issue is God is here. He's always here. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. So there's something within that that says that we have to grasp our today. So whatever our legacy was, the importance is now, what are we going to do today? Are we going to try and reach out of today to a yesterday that we thought was a golden era? Or are we going to embrace where we are today with all its questions and challenges and opportunities and joys and delights? So, so several things happen as you see that manifest across the church. One is what I call the revival circus. And um, again, I'm, I'm going to critique. There has been one in uh, Los Angeles this week. Uh, what it was commemorating was very noble. It was commemorating the um, Azusa Street experience, which, which in 1906, I guess, well, we're 16 now, was when there was a real experience of, of people experiencing the Holy Spirit in a place called Azusa Street in, in Los Angeles, California. So the reason for the celebration was legit, but what they were doing was saying, let's do this and let's repent as a nation and, and let's send our prayers up that God will send revival on our nation again. Now, it sounds good from my history. I've done that. We, I've prayed in this building a solid 24 hours at a time. We've prayed through the night. We've shot arrows into the balcony. We've anointed the pews with oil. We've, uh, you name it, we've done it. Um, all, all this thing of, somehow, my problem now is that not what that says about us, but what that says about God. That somehow we now have this God who needs to be begged, implored, impressed, uh, requested that, 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 you know, imagine, imagine those of you who have children or grandchildren, if your child was in difficulty, how much would you need to be implored if you had the opportunity to intervene? How many prayers would you need? How much intercession and fasting? 
you would, you would be at it before anybody called. And I believe that's the truth of the Bible. Before they call, I will answer. So I don't believe that this thing called revival, you know, is in the hands of God. I think it's in the hands of men. And of course, I have a different view now of, of the gospel. So I'm, I'm not as unsettled about the whole extent of the reach of grace. But this happened. So, so I'm not saying no good has come of these things, but things like Brownsville and Toronto and Sunderland um, have all had their place. But when you look at the legacy of that, it's the same people who go to Brownsville and Toronto and Sunderland and Los Angeles. It's the same people going to the front. It's the same people crying. It's the same people having the experience. And you have to think, hang on a minute. This looks like success. But actually, it's more of a circus than it is a success. Now, I'm always amazed that people's lives get touched anyway, so I'm glad about that. I am not by any means denying that people's lives do not get touched. I'm just questioning the authenticity of the claim of what the thing appears to be. Okay. So, within that context, I mentioned three things on Saturday night of, of, of three kinds of expression of, of church, which you could experience in, in pretty much anything that is organizational in life. And those three things are empirical, corporate, and organic. So I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about what I mean by those. So, so the church is empirical when it's controlled by a person or persons acting on their behalf. It's not by chance that the Roman Catholic Church, growing from the 350s and Constantine, and uh, outwards to the popes of Rome was known as the Holy Roman Empire, okay? Not the Roman Empire, which was to do with the Caesars and the Romans, but the Holy Roman Empire was the empire of the Church of Rome. Now, uh, it was as vicious and as militarily um, uh, corrupt and ambitious was the word I'm looking for, as any empire that's ever been on the face of the planet. And at the core of it was the Pope, who of course was a direct descendant of Peter, which, which I still find hilarious. How can you be a direct descendant of Peter when you're German or whatever? Um, but that's by the by. Um, uh, but it, it became an empire. So also within that structure of then deciding that you know priests shouldn't be married and all that stuff, there were brothels in Rome which were solely for the use of cardinals and priests. So it's like, well, you know, this is known now in history. It's known that, that the Borgia popes had mistresses that would sneak in. So, you know, there was all kinds of stuff going on. That, And of course, you know, popes became popes back then, uh, mostly by who you could influence and what you could offer to people so that by rewarding them financially and by earning votes, you could become the Pope, because obviously it, it was at one time the most powerful office on the planet, okay? Um, kings were afraid, kings and emperors were afraid of the Pope. Why? Because the same issue that has often come into church life was available. Um, it wasn't just that he was another king to defeat, he could damn you to hell. So you see then how 
suddenly elements of what we think are the gospel became manipulative tools to control nations and people. Um, and so the spread of, of Catholicism uh, across the world of that time was mostly by, was mostly by, uh, by military power and uh, by alliances that were made up because of the power that, that, that could, be, could be brought. So, so within that sphere as well, very much of what we would know as evangelical thought was very suppressed and very hidden. Um, obviously for us, mostly until Martin Luther in 1517, um, when we start to get, you know, the lights start to come on again about a different way to see the gospel. Uh, but partly because of how the Catholic process had become corrupt, that was part of the motivation for Martin Luther, who incidentally was a Catholic, um, for him to, um, to do what he did. So, um, in this empirical system, it becomes controlled by a person or persons acting on their behalf, um, and it's an extensive, this is how the dictionary def defines it, an extensive sphere of activity controlled by one person or group. Now, sadly, within all streams of the church, including evangelicalism, of which we would be deemed to be part, there are empirical systems within the church. And they operate in exactly the same way. They're controlled by a person or persons acting on their behalf. And... Um, Again, it's a dodgy one to talk about because because of the wonder of grace and the presence of God, people's lives are always touched. So if we can go past the bit that in spite of that, people are touched, at the core of that, you see this um, men and sometimes women who actually, when you look at what they're doing, are building empire. And when you examine the process, it has all the hallmarks of empire, Okay. Um, how does God feel about that? That's not for me to judge. You can have a think about it and see what you, you think. But I hate it because what comes out in that system is the same that has always come out in the systems of the world, which is, of course, you know, if you think of the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Portuguese Empire, there's always repression and slavery and oppression and, uh, and, and, and high levels of control and manipulation and penalty. And that exists within this thing that we call the church, empirical systems that people are feeling under bondage to. The, the, the second one, which is some, some, in some ways a more modern development of the empirical system, is what I call the corporate system. So, so we can move from the model of that controlled by a person or persons. The corporate system is controlled by a system whose sole objective is the success of the brand for profitability. So I know of many churches where the driving factor is the success of the brand for profitability. Now that profitability may seem to be noble in some ways, which is the more people we have, the more punters we have, the more clients we have, the more successful we are. Um, and I'll say a little bit about that because the question then would be, but who are the clients? Is it a little bit like Tesco has got more clients because Asda used to have those clients, in which case the number of clients has not increased. Only where they shop has increased. Only where they shop has changed. 
So the image can be, particularly when we look at the megachurch structures around the world, that wow, the church is exploding. But if you look at where the megachurches are growing from, you find we have the corporate system. Tesco stolen customers from Asda, who's stolen customers from Sainsbury's, who's stolen customers from wherever, okay? So it gives an impression of success. And if you're the megachurch pastor with five, six, eight, 10, 15, 17, 20,000, um, that looks like success. And one could argue in one sense, it is success of a kind, but it's not success in the context of what Jesus was talking about in this ever-expanding kingdom. It's about a manipulation of figures and numbers, and it's all about the bottom line. And um, uh, market share is everything. I've learned, I've been, a, I've been a pastor, a leader, a minister for a long time now. <clears throat> for over 30 years, I, I, on July 4th, I will, will have been part of the senior leadership of this house for 25 years. It's okay. Ooh. Ooh. Um, <clears throat> I, I learned very early on, one of the first questions that is asked when you're in any gathering of pastors is, first question... Hi, I'm Dave. <clears throat> How big's your church? <clears throat> Seriously. I told them in India, I said, okay, do not go to somebody when you're at this conference and say, How big's your church? That means you're not interested in them. You just want to measure whether I'm better than him, who's better than him, but he's not as good as me. So I go to talk to a bunch of guys after that very same meeting. What's the first question this guy asks me? How big is your church? Because I shocked him. I said, what do you mean? So I really don't know what you mean. <clears throat> I said, do you mean what are the numbers of people that attend on a given day? <clears throat> do you mean the reach of, of grace that comes out of the house in total? What, what exactly do you mean? Now, I know what he meant, but I was being difficult. <laughs> but I was being difficult because to break that corporate model of thinking that I, I am valued or measured by the number of people who are present in... I've talked to many leaders who are driven by the corporate thing and said, okay, so <clears throat> here's a guy. There's 2,000 people in his village. He has 50 people. Here's you in your city, and I've said this to people who've got this, with 850,000 people and you have 500 people. Who's got the biggest church? Truth is, the guy in the village is doing way, way better than the guy in the city if we're going to measure by those things. But people don't look at it like that because we've developed a corporate mentality that's become less about the kingdom and more about the business, more about the brand, and more about what we deem to be profitability. Oh, we've got this many people, or we're doing that, or whatever. Um, and in that process, structure tends to determine culture. So we decide what are the things that will get punters in and then we'll do that, and then we'll develop a culture from the structure that we've created. So the third, the third group of this, so we've got the empirical, they're still around. A lot of that has drifted into the corporate style. But the third one I call organic, or, or some people call it incarnational. The word incarnational means to be made in flesh. So Jesus was God incarnate. The word was God incarnate which gives you the sense of um, 
God didn't come into the world as a fully savvy CEO, 40-year-old, sharp leader. He came in as a baby and was subjected to the process of a developed belief, um, a, a, an experiential process of coming to knowledge and truth and understanding. I do not believe that Jesus was born with an inerrant knowledge of who the Father was or who he was. I personally don't believe that Jesus knew who he was on the earth until his baptism when he heard the Father say, this is my son whom I love, I'm pleased with him. And his, his, his miracles burst out the day that he knew who he was. Something changed in Jesus' life. I propose to you that the day we know who we are, something changes in our life. That the day that we truly embrace that God says, you're my son, I love you and I'm pleased with you. That includes the girls as well. That something changes in your life when that happens. And something, some, there is a greater connection with the flow of heaven that somehow miracles become incredibly more possible and viable when, when that occasion occurs. So... So, so Jesus, he grew, it says he grew in stature and the knowledge of the Lord. That's what it says about Jesus, okay? He grew in favor with God and with men. What? Growing, 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 learning. So um, I very much believe that the process of spirituality in church life and in individual's life is, is an incarnational one. Christ in you in the same way that God was in Christ <clears throat> and that we, we grow and we learn and our spirituality is shaped in a context, okay? Um, the context of empire, the context of corporation is always to do with the bottom line. It's the plan to achieve an objective, keep the shareholders happy, get the dividends, you know, get the big name, get more power, um, whereas in this process, the, it's about living and growing within, it, within its own context. So uh, Jesus also was not a cosmic being. He was a human being. He was a Jewish human being. He was born in Bethlehem and raised in, in Nazareth. Therefore, there was a context it was a context of Bethlehem. There was a context of Nazareth. He wasn't in the happening town, the big city, the bright lights. He was in the backwoods. He was in what would be considered now a little village, a community. So, so there is a context to his development that his spirituality, his knowledge of God, happens in a context which is not an empirical context or a corporate context that says, right, here's the things, tick this box, this box, this box, this box, this box. It's like God's looking over Jesus and just nudging him and helping him and, and, and who he is at any given time is what he has become because of his journey. So, so the pressures of corporate spirituality, the pressures of empirical spirituality were not imposed upon the life of Jesus because he was left to get on with it. And to have an experience of the Father, and within that, to find out who he was, so that when he'd come into terms with who he was, and God says, okay, you're just about there, I'll tell you. You're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. And then all those fascinating things begin to happen um, because of that. So, 
So to me, that's incarnational spirituality. That's organic spirituality. It's more forest garden than manicured flower patch. Okay? That, that's the kind of spirituality I see in this. You know, forest garden is just, you know, wild stuff growing in the forest and it... It has a context and it lives within its context and it grows and develops within its context and its beauty is, is developed within the context. As opposed to a manicured garden where, you know, manicure patch, you take the, that's going to go there and we put them all in lines, straight lines, all watered, want them all to be the same size. See, so, so there are so many of those images that to me don't fit what I think is the pure image of incarnational Christianity, organic faith. So, so in this, we talked about in, in the corporate structure, structure determines culture. We decide how we're going to build this thing, we set everything in order, and then the culture supports that. In, in organic or um, uh, incarnational spiritual church building, um, Culture determines structure, or in other words, the most important thing for us is our culture. What are we believing? What is that saying to us? How are we developing that? How is that developing? How can we put stuff around that simply to serve it? So the, the, the example I've often used on this is that um, yogurt is a culture because it's alive. And... Um, you, you make yogurt with a couple of bacteria, Streptococcus, Lactis, and there's another, what's the other one, Kath? Right. That one, Bulgaricus, yeah, from Bulgaria. Um, and um, it, it makes the milk change its nature, okay, through the infection. Um, but I've used this illustration before. You can create a thousand pots beautifully, beautifully labeled and um, uh, with the word yogurt on the pot. And you can fill them with milk. But all you finish up with is sour milk because the structure will not change the milk into the culture yogurt. But you can create yogurt without a yogurt pot. You can create it without anything to put it in. You can create it because that is the living culture. So we don't create yogurt pots so we can create yogurt. We create yogurt pots because we have yogurt, okay? So, so the idea is that structure serves culture. We, we are trying to be infectious and infect one another and be infected by this organic uh, incarnational understanding of the Christ and of heaven and of the Father and of the Spirit. And what we're seeking to do within this model and what anybody who holds this model does, then structure becomes the thing you simply create to, 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 to transport that. Another great example of that is you know, Jesus said no man puts new wine in old wineskins because if he does, the skins will burst and the wine and the skin will be lost. Um, wineskins have only one reason for existence. And that's if you have wine. If you don't have any wine, wineskins have no purpose. So the skin was created 
to serve the wine that was being produced. You didn't create the skins to produce wine because that would have never been what it was. So you, you get the idea that, that within this organic incarnational understanding of spirituality, um, there's always movement and change and within the structure, within what we do and how we do it and why we do it, there's always going to be movement because that's being shaped to accommodate the developing culture that now exists. So we have to keep changing what we say. We have to keep changing how we present it because of that process. So these, I believe, are the three kinds of, um, of, of church. So how would you assess these groups and brands? Well, let me give you a few personal experiences. Again, this is, this is I am trying to be, I'm trying to critique this rather than be critical. Um, some of you know we went through some stuff some years ago, so over a decade now. Um, but it was interesting to me, I knew some very prominent um, large church leaders who were significant by their reluctance to get involved in our situation. Um, because it looked like a lot of mud was going to fly. And it became very evident that in some leader's eyes, if the mud's going to fly, and I'm where the mud's flying, the mud might stick. And if the mud sticks, what's that going to do to what I've built? Why? Because that's an indicator that what was being built was either corporate or empirical. So the concern was not, how is Chris and Anth? The concern was, if I'm too close to them, and uh, it's the fan, we might get covered. So I had to go through the experience of people who I greatly admired and still do, very evidently stepping back to see how things went. Now, um, the upshot of that is that now I'm not as close to those people as I used to be, not because there's no forgiveness, but because um, I, don't, I don't like to live that way. So, so <clears throat> also another thing, Cain, again I raise this, championing the local church is a common phrase. We're here to champion the local church. My struggle with that is, then how come in championing the local church, you've emptied so many local churches to champion the local church? How come you're saying welcome, not go back? We'll, we'll equip you, but go back. Um, because too often that's the phrase, that's the, front, that's the upfront thing, sales thing. We're championing the local church. When actually what's happening is we are draining the local church of anybody who will come to us. So our growth is at the expense of those are the churches that we said we were championing. Now, my view is this. If you didn't say you were championing them, I'd be okay. But if you're going to say you're championing the local church, that's a sales ploy to get you through the door. And then we're going to keep you because now we've got you on the hook like any sales thing which shows then it's corporate, okay? So, another one. I had a letter. It was an amazing letter about how this group wanted to partner with us. We want to partner with you, we want to partner with your young people. We're just committed to, to, to raising up great, great groups. 
we want to partner with you. And uh, this was a, a large establishment. We want to partner with you. And then it got to the last paragraph, which said, so, in order for us to partner with you, we'd like you to fill in this form, send us 150 quid, put us down for 30 pounds a month, and we'll give you 20% off in our bookshop. You get 25% off our conferences. And I'm like, how is that you partnering with me? That's me partnering with you. Because to me, partnering with me is, we want to partner with you, you're smaller than us, here's a thousand quid to get you going. Why? Corporate, empirical, I'm just trying to help you, I'm just, I just aren't going to hold the bull on this stuff, because it... Oh. And then shifting associations to find the greatest personal benefit. Um, I know a person, I won't use the name. Um, and I've watched him shift from group to group. <coughs> Finding the group that would give him the greatest opportunity, um, the, the biggest platform, uh, and therefore potentially, um, by their name, allow him to grow a bigger church. And so, of course, then you get into the multi-campus thing, which again, don't, don't think I have a problem with this. I don't have a problem, but what I do have a problem with is when it's empirical or when it's, or when it's corporate, and when it's actually game-playing with the numbers, because it's about getting the punters into somewhere different. So, so, so I've watched this person now who has an element of success. But I struggle for those reasons that that's how this has been arrived at. That is if success can be measured by how many one church, you know, 47 locations and... Um, you know, X number of people, if that's how success is measured. Now, if you want to think I'm saying this because I'm jealous, I, maybe I am, I don't know. <laughs> that's up to you. But I would hope if I pull that trick, you'd be the first to say, Anth, listen, mate, this, this, is not, this is not organic, this is not incarnational, this is corporate. Now, again, the wonderful thing is people get touched and people get reached. Fantastic, wonderful. So I'm not, I'm not knocking that, but I am knocking the process that allows us to come to some of these, these things. Um, there's also another situation where you can, you can be involved, but we're not going to give you our name unless you are of a certain size and recognition in your city. Why? Because we don't brand small churches. So you can't call yourself uh-uh unless you're this size and have this influence. Which means what we're doing is brand protecting. Okay? Our brand is successful. Our brand brings in a lot of money. Our brand opens a lot of doors. So we can't afford to have a lot of little people bringing our brand over their door who, number one, we can't control... And number two, are not big enough to warrant our time and investment. Now, I could tell you the group. I could give you the name. You all know the name, but I'm not going to give you it. But that doesn't suit me. I don't like it. So let me read you something from, uh, from a book by a, um, a guy that I've become friends with called Alan Molyneux. Um, he's written a book called Sea and Islands, which... The print and the layout sucks. I mean, that just sucks. It's like, do not write a book like that. Bless you, Alan. I love you, mate. 
you're terrific. Uh, the content is terrific, which is what matters really. Um, <clears throat> but Alan has a few things to say about this stuff, so, so let me just read you something, this, this to, sh to highlight what concerns me. Go to any large church, organization, or outreach work, and you will see quite quickly that they will often present themselves as being innovative in the way they approach their chosen goal. It doesn't take long, however, to see that the context of this innovation is the narrowness of the evangelical subculture, <coughs> rather than the world in general. Or in other words, what it does, it's figured what the evangelical Christian subculture likes and gives them that. So it's innovative in that context, but in the context of the world, it's not. <clears throat> Essentially, they are performing in ways that are unusual in a church context, but are not innovative in the context of the wider world. They perhaps not the world changes that their publicity material suggests. <clears throat> Part of the problem is that many of us in church leadership have bought into the corporate model <clears throat> that is the major power within our broken world. <clears throat> or in other words, we're replicating the very thing that is part of the problem in the world. In this regard, we're actually followers of the system rather than revolutionaries. The business model employed by groups like this church may well seem innovative in the context of a church scene that is stuck in modernity, but it is in essence a facsimile of any one of the major franchise organizations we see in the marketplace. In other words, Alan says, you, you know, it's a church with this name, but if you look at the franchise model, it's identical. Um, when such constructs are dependent upon the usual markers of a corporate business model, it is not surprising that any of these organizations might act in ways that reflect the same methodology such groups do help people, but its ability to create freedom and break the cycle of oppression is limited by the pressures of the marketplace. Or in other words, we can't afford to do anything that turns the punters away. So, he goes on to this. In 2014, the USA arm of the charity World Vision released a document saying that it was going to comply with state law by not discriminating against staff because of their sexuality. Essentially, they would be open to employing people from the LGBTQ community. Now, for the older ones, that's the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer community, okay? The backlash from their evangelical supporters was quick and painful, with an estimated 10,000 children losing sponsorship. This is the lunacy of this. Within days, World Vision was forced to reverse its decision, but it is still suffering a loss of revenue. It seems they are less trusted by some parts of the evangelical community. Essentially, the organization could not afford to stand up for a decision they believed to be correct because their model was similar to that of any corporate company, namely, the revenue stream must be protected. I'm not suggesting that either the leaders of or World Vision, I've had motives in this. I am saying that the model and subsequent construct makes it almost impossible for them to make a stand that is free from the influence of their constituency. The business model is running them rather than the reverse. And you would not believe it, but that this name and one or two other names are being run by the business model. 
because they cannot take any stand that might affect what they call the constituency. In other words, people will leave if we say we believe that. People might not give their ties if we don't say that this is important to us. Or in this case, hey, listen, nobody's asking them to agree with them employing LGBTQ community in, in the church. That's fine. You don't, ha- you don't have to agree. But say your piece and raise your voice and don't make 10,000 children suffer. Don't make it so an organization has to change its direction because you were upset about one decision that then affects everything else because you were too upset. That's the childishness of this, but that's the model. This is not just about being consistent with our beliefs and practices. The position of power and privilege affords us the opportunity of either supporting the prevailing privilege or offering a prophetic challenge. That's what we're trying to do. Those in power have the potential to open the door for the kind of freedom that allows people the opportunity to hear the story of Jesus as good news. Unfortunately, we also have the power to enslave people in such a way that any good news that we proclaim will be perceived as being a symbol of oppression. So when we get outside of our little closed doors, most people believe that what we are preaching is a system of oppression. Oh, you're just here to point out what people have done wrong. Just here to tell them how bad they are. You're just here to damn them to hell, or if you can get them in so you can get their money. That, that's a lot of the impression from outside, when actually we should be the voice of liberty and liberation and freedom to all of society. So let's, let's move on so we can hopefully get finished. There can be no denying the influence of modern corporatism in conservative evangelical church growth. Expansion probably reflects more of a franchise model than an entrepreneurial one. Now, is this a bad thing? Again, think about it. You know, Paul said, by all means, win some. So it might not be a bad thing, but it's something we have to think about. When we consider the fastest growing and therefore by implication the most successful examples of the Western church are those that best mirror the corporate model. And that's true, you can look anywhere across the world. It becomes difficult to criticize without sounding as if we despise their success. So I don't despise their success, I'm delighted for it, but we still have to critique what it really is that's going on. Maybe they cannot adhere to an organic incarnational form of Christianity because it may damage the bottom line. People may seem to be the point, but only so far as they are the product. So it's not really about how the LBGTQTLYCT, it's all these too many letters. It's not, it's not really a, a, about those issues at the end of the day. It's about who's going to get upset to where we might lose people and become smaller or the church empty out or us have to have 200 rather than 2,000. And that's sad. That's, that's, that's really, really, really sad. So, so, so when we look at all that, you see then within the corporate model, there's something called KPIs, key performance indicators in the corporate model, that is the corporate world's means of measuring 
by which the success of the organization and one's acceptability within the organization are judged. And dividends for shareholders are the objective. So, so my ability to keep those KPIs affects how I am perceived within the organization. And also, the keeping of those is also about how the, the success of the organization is measured. So if I'm upcoming in that kind of system, I'm going to play whatever game is there because my only way to advance is to be recognized for keeping these key performance indicators, otherwise I don't advance. So, so if you are ambitious, you get sucked into a system that then replicates itself and one has to ask, okay, it's good, it works, God is gracious, but is that really what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church? Now in contrast, there are groups who are not seeking the destruction of church communities, as some evangelicals fear, but the deconstruction of the need to congregate around unquestioned beliefs and hierarchical structures. Now we fall more into this category. We would be accused of seeking to destroy church communities. Oh well, you know, there's all this history and we, this is the way we work and this is what happens and you're just trying to destroy it. And uh, I've learned very quickly there are some things that if you mention, uh, you're gonna quickly get yourself off the guest list. You don't have to say there is no hell, you just have to question that there might not be, and you're off the guest list, you're done. I know from personal experience. Doesn't matter how biblical, how historical you are in the way that you present it, you're done, why? Because no, we can't let that go. Now, if you understand the whole system of empire and corporation, there has to be reward and punishment or it doesn't work that the hardest thing in leading a church or any charity is the volunteer question. If you turn up for late for work or don't turn up at all, guess what happens? You get your pay docked, you get a warning, you might lose your job. But if you come late every time here, what's going to happen to you? Nothing. So there's no leverage, there's no manipulation, there's no way of saying you have to when you're in this sector. Now, of course, the reason people don't want you to take away the strong idea that, that if you do wrong, you're going to hell and you'll be there for all eternity, or the idea that God's love is transient in that he'll love you today, but if you don't live a holy life, he won't love you tomorrow, then you're going to have to live and you need me to help you to define that, is actually all about control and power. And what I've found, sadly, in my experience, is pastors don't want you to take from them what has been their leverage all this time that keeps people in the church, people you need to know, if you don't love God, if you don't follow God, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you could wind up in hell. And I'll tell you how to be a disciple of Jesus, so keep coming. And you've got possibilities, see? Now, we've freed you from all that, and so some people don't like that. Some believers don't like that. Because we like to think I'm going to be rewarded for doing good and I'll be punished for doing bad and my idea is to get higher up the ladder than Chloe by being better than Chloe. See, and it, we, we've taken that system away because that's part of the empirical and corporate system that still works. You better toe the party line in a church that is corporate or you're done, right? I, I know many of them have a three strikes and you're out rule. And I know that 
absolutely accurately, three strikes and you're out. You miss music practice three times, you're done. Your history. And the problem is, if you've got many thousands of people and 40 people who can fill that gap, you don't care. It's just a piece of meat. We were using you for our ends. See? Now, we don't have thousands of people, so I can't afford to upset anybody. <laughs> After keeping everybody's good books. Lots of strokes. But if we did, I would like to think that that would not be the system that we would run. You don't run that system just because you have people are dispensable. We have to believe people are indispensable. And yeah, I want people to be faithful. I want people to be on time. I want people to give the best that they can give. But once you remove the manipulation, once you remove that Jesus will reward you for being on time, it then becomes a matter of maturity of the believer. It becomes organic. It becomes incarnational. I am in this world because like Jesus, God put me here. And therefore I need to be where I need to be when I need to be there. Imagine Jesus, oh well, I was going to go to a wedding but I couldn't be bothered. And there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and Jesus should have been there with his mother. But lo, on that day he did sleep in. And they had run out of wine. And there was a fight at the wedding <laughs> where the master of the wedding was severely beaten for his inability to provide sufficient wine for the guests. See, the story could have been so different. But incarnationally, Jesus knew he had to be some places, sometimes, at a time, because it was important. We fail to recognize sometimes our importance of our presence. That incarnational works when you're present, okay? So your presence here tonight is incarnational, okay? God in you, Christ in you, here present now. For whatever reason that may be, and I don't think Jesus, when he went to the wedding that day, thought, oh, they're going to run out of wine and so I'll make wine. He, he knew they'd run out of wine when his mother came and said to him, they've got no more wine, and he thinks, ah, okay, well that's why I've been here for all these hours. With me it would be, I hate weddings, but I'm glad I was here. Do you understand the difference, okay? So, 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 so a lot of evangelicals fear that what we're trying to do is, is, is be destructive towards the church community. Some of you might think that when I say things about church doctrine and church history, I'm trying to be destructive. But actually I'm not. What I'm doing is trying to deconstruct the need to congregate around unquestioned beliefs and hierarchical structures. We need to deconstruct that so that we can question beliefs and we're not subject to hierarchical structures. Because one, if not, if not the favorite verse of the church grouping known as evangelical is John 3.16. All of us that were raised in church remember that. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The problem is the more you look at this, you realize, and we must not assume, that everyone has the same meaning for God and love and world. We think just because people say God so loved the world that when they say God they mean the same thing as we mean. And when they say love they mean the same thing as we mean and when they say world they mean the same thing as we mean. But actually they don't. So it's in those assumptions that we have to then move to try and release and understand that you know, we're, we're not, we're, we might be saying the same words but we're most certainly not saying the same thing. 
Lots I could say about that, but we won't. So let, let me just um, try and cover a couple more things. Within the em empirical and corporate models of church, questioners are labeled rebellious or non-submissive. Um, the song we sang for, for Keith on uh, Sunday, Lord, I Come to You, um, um, uh, Power of Your Love, um, written by a guy called Jeff Bullock, who um, some things happened, and questions were asked, and that was the end of Jeff, basically. Uh, I won't give you the whole story. Why is that? Because of this very, very sad thing that, that in this imperial corporate model, questioners are labeled rebellious or non-submissive. And rather than wrestling with the questions openly in a continuing spirit of love, it seems the preferred action is to remove the questioner from the group. Because um, it seems the search for truth is far less important than the protection or preservation of the tribe, or the church, or the denomination, or the title. And I would use for that example people like Rob Bell in America and Steve Chalk here. I don't fully agree with Steve um, on his views on gay marriage. Um, but I agree with Steve because he's a proven guy who loves God and serves God and has, has served the community and serves the world. But the Evangelical Alliance decided he's no longer evangelical because in his view we should accommodate um, gay marriage. Now, again, whatever your views are in here tonight, they will vary. Some of you won't flip a hair at that. Some of you think, you know, that's a real biggie. Yeah, it is. I sit somewhere in the middle of that, of that journey. But, but really, so regardless of anything and everything, Steve Chalk's now not an evangelical just because of his view on one thing. See, the problem is... If they didn't get rid of Steve, they would have to have a much bigger, much wider debate on the whole issue of, 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 of the gay question, and they didn't want to have that debate. So what do we do? Let's just get rid of Steve, then we don't have to answer the question. When the healthy thing would have been said, okay, Steve, we don't agree with you, mate, and he would have been fine. We don't agree with you. Um, and we're going to let it be known that we don't agree with you, but we're going to have this conversation. And we're going to let this conversation run until this conversation's done. But instead, we get rid of them. So Rob Bell writes Love Wins, and uh, he gets hammered, and he gets put out of the group. Farewell Rob Bell, as one guy wrote, um, rather cruelly, because Rob Bell raised questions about the eternal nature of hell, and about the means by which one can define a person is saved. He was not making statements, he was raising questions. But the church, when it's in the corporate and empirical model, can't deal with questions. Any more than if you questioned the king at one time, you were going, yo, yo, on the block, your head was coming off. You were going to the tower. You don't question the king. You didn't question the pope. The problem is, in many structures of church leadership, you don't question the leadership, you don't question the doctrine, you don't question the methods. Because if you do, this is what happens. So, so poor old Steve Chalk was expelled because we won't, you know, 
was more important to preserve what people think evangelicalism is than let Steve Chalk potentially mess with that concept. And so we sacrifice him for the corporation, for the brand. Okay, do you see where I'm coming from with this? We should remember that Christianity was a grassroots phenomenon. Organic incarnational Christianity is not looking back for a golden age, but for the reclaiming of all that can be useful in the establishing of the kingdom of God which Jesus described. So our view on history is we're looking for what can be reclaimed to be useful in establishing the kingdom of God which Jesus described. So anything in that, the past that can be used for that, we will use. But anything that in the context of present day cannot do that, we will not use. And we will raise whatever argument we have against it. So question then for us, do we have a constituency or a community? Do we have to say what the constituents want to hear so they will vote for us? Or can we say what we really think even if it goes against the perceived wisdom of the group? whether that group is the congregational group or the peer group. For me, other ministers are in congregational in the context of the church. Are we a community or a constituency? You can tell the difference because you have to keep a constituency happy. So a corporate church has to keep the constituency happy. So it can't do anything that the constituents will struggle with because it has to keep the constituency happy because they vote with their feet and with their money. Whereas in a community, you can say what you really think. And you're not worried about whether people stay or people leave, whether people give or people don't give, because there is a higher truth that you are holding to. So are we a constituency or a community? Within the constraints of a loving family, questions of why become sacred rather than sinful. That's a great statement. Within the constraints of a loving family, which I hope we are, questions of why become sacred rather than sinful. When it's not a loving family, why is a sinful act? I can't believe that you're saying why. In a loving family, that why becomes sacred. The question is important, it's valued, it's significant. I think I've found that when I've raised a lot of issues now about why did we believe this and why did we believe that, I like to think you've treated that as sacred rather than sinful. And so we've been able to somehow find the goodness of God in all of it. Okay, so two more things. Sometimes people, if you don't toll the party line, if you are not speaking the common narrative, will throw the one at you that says, you're a cult, okay? Let me tell you what, um, this is what, what uh, Alan Molyneux wrote down from, could your evangelical church be unhealthy? Question mark. If it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, and looks like a duck, then it's probably a duck, or so the saying goes. As mentioned previously, I have been part of the evangelical culture since 1975. It's much longer for me. Um, when, as a teenager, I attended a small church on the east side of Manchester, England. At that time, I was impressed by the community and the clarity with which they presented their ideas. Over the years, however, I have seen my fair share of dysfunctionality, some of which was my own, 
there does, not seem, there does seem to be a pattern in some of these moments that I believe is worthy of consideration. First of all, let me say that I am committed to remaining within the evangelical community, even though some of my views have been met with the kind of reaction that suggests others might not agree. Having said that, I am not of a mind to stay silent about important issues, just to be seen to toe the party line. It never ceases to amaze me how often people call for silence in the name of unity without recognizing how this can have a tendency to enable unhealthy cultures. As briefly mentioned earlier, I came across some work done by Dr. Robert J. Lifton called Criteria for Thought Reform, in which he highlights some key indicators that suggest whether an organization might be seen as a cult. Condensed, they look like this. So here's the cult test, okay? Whether we're a cult. Number one, the milieu control, that's a clever name, isn't it? Which simply means this, essentially controlling what people read and with whom they relate, creating an us and against them scenario. Would that be true of us? Number two, mystical manipulation, planned spontaneity. Assigning supernatural significance to things that happen, even if they might be explained in normal ways essentially ascribing to mundane things a spiritual significance. Is that us? Okay. Number three, the demand for purity. Binary response to what in looks like or what is deemed as acceptable behavior. Does that describe us? Number four, confession. Creates control by devaluing the person, revealing mistakes and sins, and makes the individual vulnerable to manipulation. Does that describe us? We're doing quite well, aren't we? Number five, sacred science. The ideology is given special sacred status and cannot be critiqued. That would be like me saying, listen, what I am telling you is God speaking to you. God has told me this, so that's the pressure on you which says you can't critique this because does that happen here? Okay, six, loading the language. The language of the totalist environment is characterized by the thought-terminating cliché. See here the conversation-stopping statements offered by many. I saw a recent Facebook status by a leader declaring that nobody has ever spoken of Jesus in the past tense. I replied with, are you actually saying nobody? It's the loading of language to make you think something or believe something and put pressure on you. Do we do that? Number seven, doctrine over purpose. The ideology is more important than the person. Do we do that? And number eight, dispensing of existence. Value is now attributed to the individual's relationship to the group. Are they valuable to the aims and objectives? That's how values determine. Do we do that? So by that definition, then we're not a cult. So you are free to say, no, we're not. Okay. Ah, right, so where are we? Oh, there, yes, okay. So, one more thing I'll read to you. And then we're done. This is also in Alan's book. Um, this Desmond Tutu said this, and it, it epitomizes still a lot of um, how subconsciously the church works. When the missionaries came to Africa... They had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. 
When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. See, that, that, is, that is typical of imperialism thinking and I sometimes worry that an element of that happens when we call people to the front of the church and we pray with them. That they had the land, we had the Bible, we said let's pray and when they open their eyes, suddenly they've got the Bible and we've got their land and there's been a transition of something that's just not... So we're trying to break and loosen these things because... They're all part of those models that we don't want to be. Okay, so the last thing. Um, we have to admit, all of this stuff we're talking about, that this does not feel as secure as the certitude we have all become used to in the more traditional evangelical side style, okay? Which I think you would agree. It is interesting to note that the idea of a pure gospel seems to have similar cathartic qualities to any other nostalgic thought. In other words, what he's saying is we use terms like pure gospel you know, and, and, and the pure word of God, but really it's a bit cathartic in the sense that what do we really, how pure is it? How do we know it's pure? What do we really mean by? It feels familiar and helps people to locate themselves. The problem is that it often has little resemblance to the teaching and ministry of Jesus. So if we speak of a God who knows the plans he has for you, or who will not give you more than you can carry, it has a familiar ring to it. We seemingly enter the footprints poem and look to find our own personal Jesus, sing a couple of verses of his eyes on the sparrow, and our spiritual therapy session is complete. We can return to our homes feeling comforted. As the comedian Stuart Lee puts it when speaking about another context, Leave the same as you came, only more so. That is the problem. We can have an experience that actually we leave the way that we came, only more so. But we feel good, but because we feel more like we did when we came. And so then we can tick the boxes and we've, we've fulfilled the mandate of the franchise but actually nothing organic has taken place. Nothing, nothing has happened within us that we could say was incarnational. Nothing has occurred that has sent us away more disturbed when we leave than when we came because we realize actually that we are God's light to the world and God's word for humanity that actually we come and some burdens are relieved but some pressures come back on us because we realize the responsibility that is now ours because of the grace that, that we have encountered. So, so different kinds of churches, I really hope, I pray and I'm doing my best. We all see through a lens, we all, we all can't avoid being influenced by um, the worldview that has developed because of our own concepts and experiences but I hope I hope I hope and I hope we can help each other that we actually see the need to be organic and incarnational and that actually there are models of doing this that may be more successful in one way of being in terms of the punters we can get some of Tesco's people and Asda's people 
But at the end of the day, I'm more the fulfillment of a corporate entity than they actually are the coming of the kingdom of God in power. So questions are allowed. This is a safe place. Why is sacred in this house? And we're going to keep moving forward. That's why I said that this is the shape of things to come is, is organic, incarnational. We're looking to build a forest garden, not a manicured plot. And in that, we need, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. We need guidance because we can't now take this step to say, we've taken this step, we know everything, we're impervious to error. We have to say, we are as impervious to error and difficulty as in any other situation. The one saving grace might be that we actually acknowledge that. That we're actually prepared to say that the only accurate Theology is the one that accepts it may not be accurate. I think that's a healthy place to be. It, it, it's a certain uncertainty. It, it, it's a powerful mystery that we are called into. So I believe that this is our best day because we're here and hearing this now, that today is what it's all about. And I believe that we've got a lot more of great todays to come as we seek to be this and live this and release this and model this, because the last thing I would say is that when you've been raised like I was raised in this background, I mean, thankfully for some reason, I think it was probably because of the, some devastating things that happened in my life that, that, that shook me free a little bit. You know, when you shake something, stuff comes loose, and uh, I got shaken some years ago, and some stuff came loose, and I think that positioned me to probably um, have a little less fear about transitioning into new things because where I was wasn't going to be saved without something different to what I had. Um, but I do feel for people who've not had those experiences, who are now wrestling, who the first thought that comes into the mind when you talk like this is fear that what if this isn't right? And if this is not right, God's going to judge me. And if I'm judged, I could finish up in hell. That's a pretty, that's a pretty um, convincing fear. And we need to be extremely um, considerate and tender-hearted uh, to people who, who will wrestle with those issues as we talk this kind of language. But also be grateful that by the grace of God you've come as far as you have because we've come a long way. But grace brought us safe this far and I believe grace will lead us home. Um, if I can use the phrase, which is a bit of a pun, the one saving grace in this is that we are so obsessed with grace that I can't see how the Father could not take care of us because I think we're obsessed with the right thing. I think we're obsessed with his goodness and his faithfulness and his love and his kindness. Uh, and so I think he's going to help us. And I think he has helped us. Um, but I think we're still going to have change. So there you go. So Father, help us to grasp this stuff. Help us to be what we need to be. Help us to be loving and kind generous of spirit and to share what we have um, and pray father that when we are confronted we will not be um, will not be abusive and we'll not be um, angry and will not fight but that we'll have a gentle answer and wisdom in our own heart um, because we love people and we love all people and for even some of the people we've talked about in critique tonight father we thank you for them we thank you for their sincerity in their heart and pray the blessing of god upon them but i also say but bring them to this revelation as well in jesus name 
Amen. All right, thank you. I appreciate your kindness in sitting and listening. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.